Good morning. It's okay. This happens sometimes. The problem with ninjas is every once in a while, the lights turn on before the ninjas are done, and we are ninjas on this stage. So let's give a round of applause for the awesome team that you never see that magically makes that happen every single week. Um, so grateful. This, uh, one of the things I love about this church is that, uh, that it's built off and, and executed every single week by people who believe in giving their time. And that uh, the band that you saw, they, this is their gift to you and to him. And that the people who um, are creating the environments that your kids are falling in love with as they're discovering a God who has completely given his love to them. It's all done volunteers. And it's one of the things I love about this church. You're standing in a room, you're standing in a place that's been created by people, ordinary people who believe there is an extraordinary hope to the message and to the movement of what God's doing here at Encounter Church. And so that's why our clapping for them and celebrating and them is, is not just what they do every week, but it's all the other people that you don't see that just, they got caught this week doing what they do. You don't see what all the other people are doing. And uh, just to, for you to know, that's why I love being a pastor here, is because of you. And the you that's not even present in this room that allow you to be in this room. Today we're going to continue a series called Love Life, and this is a series I've heard from you. It's been really helpful, very challenging and inspiring. Uh, the first week of the series, two weeks ago, uh, Jason referenced our, we have an app. You can download that app. It's free. We're not tracking you. We're not Google. Um, we, we don't care where you're getting your hair done or your gas station. Right? We just want to put hope in your pocket for free. And uh, so if you download the app, you'll actually find the last two messages from the series already preloaded in the podcast aspect. And uh, the first week was really kind of set the tone. And last week, I said we wanted to get a little bit more practical. And I want to kind of continue that theme over the next, this week. Uh, we want to kind of press into this, how do we practically take steps to experience the love life God intended? Because do you know that there is an intention God has for your love life? And just because you're not living it right now does not mean you cannot experience it. And so this series is about us starting to find a little bit of life in our love and to discover some love in our life. I uh, came across an article uh, recently in The Guardian uh, that captured a story happening in Tibet and then in the Yutan uh, province of China. A uh, guy named Su Yan was on vacation in Tibet and uh, came across a Tibetan Mastiff puppy. And uh, this is a Tibetan Mastiff because I don't imagine most of you picture Tibetan Mastiffs in your head pretty quickly. They're magnificent creatures. Uh, their barks are probably, of all the canine uh, barks, theirs are the most intense. It's this deep, guttural, if you ever heard it, you run. You don't need to see this thing. You just hear it. You run from it. And, um, and Tibetan Mastiffs get very large, obviously. And so one of the things uh, Su Yan noticed really quick was how much this dog was eating. He would go through two buckets of noodles and a box of fruit every day. Two years later, fast forward, and uh, that puppy is now 250 pounds. And one day, Suyan is sitting there, and the puppy does something extraordinary. He stands up on his back two legs, because it's not a Tibetan Mastiff. It's a black bear. And this is the bear. This is the actual shot of them coming in and having to capture and cage and haul the black bear off. 
Because this family had been raising not a Tibetan Mastiff, but a black bear. And I can kind of imagine the moment, right, when all of a sudden the dog that never barks stands up and you go, aha, makes sense. This explains a whole lot. And I, I think when I saw this story, I thought about relationships because I think for some of us, if we're being real, relationships feel a little bit like this, don't it? You start off and you think you've got a puppy. And then two years later, 250 pounds later, it stands up and it's a black bear. And you're like, what in the world happened? Because I don't have to know you to know this, that none of you stepped into a relationship thinking, I can't wait to destroy you. Like, that's not written in anyone's vows. I can't wait to systematically ignore you and to treat you with a, a sense of indifference that robs your soul. Like, no one comes into relationships with that mentality. And yet, what happens is one day the puppy stands up on the back two legs and it's a black bear. And I want us to have our own aha moment today. Our aha moment with and around one of the most powerful things in relationships. That while um, a recent UK study showed that 5% of divorces were happening because of Fortnite, this was recently actually real, 95% um, of them are not happening because of an addiction to Fortnite, right, which is an electronic game that you ask a teenager and they will tell you more about it, okay? Um, 95% of divorces end a lot of times because of this other component, this other piece. And I would even argue that 5% was part of this same thing. And it's words. Our words have the power to transform our relationship for good or for bad. Your words, my words, something that is so easy to do. For 30 minutes, you're going to hear me use words. And it's so easy to say them. And yet, somehow, when they land on the inside, they have far more power than just the simple wind and breath that came out of my mouth. And this is not something that's a recent discovery. I'm, I'm not inventing this idea that words can destroy or words can build a relationship. Although, I think embedded in the very marriage ceremony itself is, if you think about it, an act of words. You say your vows. These are the words that I commit to to live out in front of you. But this idea of words having power is something that 3,000 years ago, the wisest man who has ever lived, second to Jesus, in a moment with his children, wanted to make this point emphatic to him. And he wrote this simple sentence, a simple sentence that's going to kind of frame our entire discussion today. He, he sits them down, and this wisest man who's ever lived is Israel's kind of third and greatest economic king this man named King Solomon. King Solomon was the son to Israel's greatest, most famous king in kind of their ancient Jewish history. Uh, the, his father was King David. And David's responsible for establishing this kind of dynasty of um, Israeli power. And Solomon is born, and Solomon steps in, and Solomon takes the kingdom far greater and vaster places than anyone had ever imagined. It gets to the point economically under Solomon that there is so much wealth in this community, so much wealth in this nation, that silver, which was a, a primary trading commodity, is almost worthless. See, so you have to think about it. It's like there's so much money, there's so much growth, there's so much just 
power and expansion. And Solomon recognizes that I've got to prepare my children to take over one day. And so he writes the book of Proverbs primarily as a parenting guide. He writes these words that you find as as kind of coaching moments for his children. Daughter, son, hear me. And this is one of the things that he says. In fact, he talks about words more than any other thing in the entire book of Proverbs. He has over 90 different Proverbs pushing into the power of the tongue. And he says this one. This is probably one of his more famous ones. He says, son or daughter, the tongue has the power of life and death. And those who love it will eat its fruit. He says, I want you to hear me. Your words, son. Your words, daughter. They have power. What kind of power? The power of life and the power of death. And on one level, when you read this, I can picture his children doing what most of us would do if our parents said something like that to us. They would roll their eyes. Right? Like, this is a little drastic. Life or death, are you kidding me? Like, that's so dramatic. But there's a word used inside of this proverb that I think was pointing them to a deeper realization. He says the word fruit. This is interesting. Why use the word fruit when talking about words? It's because he wanted them to realize that, look, you don't think your words have power. But you're not throwing words, you're throwing seeds. And when they land, they will eventually grow. And when they grow, they will produce two types of fruit, life or death. And that when you speak, you speak seeds, and those seeds, they land inside the soul and the human heart and they grow. This week, I saw that. Our, um, one of our bedtime rituals in the Causey household is uh, we read the Bible, we pray, and then we read a storybook. And then we are reverse hostage situation in the room. And, um, and one of the things that Jenny noticed this week, because we have this little storybook Bible that Ella can read. So simple sentences, and Ella was reading. And it's been neat to watch her read the Bible to us. And this past week, she wouldn't read. And Jenny was like, sweetie, why won't you read? I don't want to read okay. And Jenny started kind of pulling things out a little bit, and it eventually kind of came out. She's like, I read like a robot. I'm like, what do you mean you read like a robot? You don't read like a robot. Uh-huh, someone told me this week when I was reading out loud that I read like a robot. And here's this little girl, 24 hours before, loved reading. She would say to me while we were reading, Daddy, go to the next story so I could read it. And now she's not reading. Why? Because of one little word. Someone said, hey, you read like a robot. I'm like, that's what happens when a seed hits a heart. It grows. Death and life, it's not always as dramatic as a flat line and a defibrillator needed. Sometimes death looks a little different. In this case, it was the death of love of reading. That my wife had to revive that love because death had set in because of a seed that had hit the ground, that had sprouted up, and that had choked out something that she'd love to do. And this is where I think it's important. What I want to do today is I want to press into the subtlety 
of the seeds that you and I speak. Because I don't have to know you or your situation. I don't have to know your relationship status. I don't have to know the quality of the relationships around you to know this one simple thing. That the quality of your words is going to reflect the quality of the relationships you have. Period. That the quality of the words that you speak, the way you say it and what you say, will determine the quality you have in the relationships that you have. And that instead of looking at life and death through the frame of drastic and dramatic, I want to kind of take it and look at it like a spectrum or a gradient. And I want to introduce you to a series of steps along that gradient that I've um, kind of created some graphics for just to kind of help the conversation. And realize that we bounce along this spectrum. We have a tendency to, to speak this one way and then we can speak this other way because we had a good day. But... If we're going to have an aha moment with our words, it begins with us beginning with an awareness of where we are speaking out of and from. And so, life and death, with the spectrum, the thing that stands out for us most when we think about death and words is what would be called the aggressive part, which is kind of the far end of the extreme. It's the, the screaming, the yelling, but it's, it's subtle. Aggressive can be active aggression, which is what most of us think about the screams, the yells, the, the straight jabs into the heart, saying those things that you know will cut them down. But it can also be passive too. The active and passive both have the same desire. It's aggression. It's warfare. It's words that have been weaponized. Because right? words can be weaponized. That stupid thing that we got told when we were kids about sticks and stones, right? They may break your bones. I'm like, what kind of stick do people use to break bones with? But that's beside the point. It was like, but words would never hurt me. I'm like, that is the dumbest thing. You know what? I don't feel the sticks and the stones that I got hit with. But it's amazing, as a 37-year-old, I still remember the words I got told. So I'm like, whoever invented that should not be working for any kind of postcard company or meme company because they suck. They're horrible. Because words do. Sticks and stones only break the skin. Words can break a heart. And that aggression, this aggressive side, this active, weaponized, I want to destroy you with my words, is what most of us think about with death. And maybe some of you, this is the household that you grew up in. You heard the screaming from one side to the next. And I can guarantee that Thank you for screaming at me. I feel so much better and feel so much more connected to you. It's something that has never been said before. Right? I mean, screaming doesn't work. It may get someone to do what you want them to do, but that's not love. That's called control. That's a different kind of power. Screaming is one of those ways that we see this active, aggressive thing. The little zingers that you watched your parents throw at each other, or the zingers that maybe you throw at one another. But oftentimes, it's also passive, and that's the one that's a little bit trickier for us. Because maybe you heard aggression, and you're like, nope, I'm never there. I don't scream, I don't yell, I don't cut down. But there's a side that's passive that maybe some of us would be able to a little identify more with. That's a little bit more subtle. It's in the sarcasm that we can use. And then the words, I'm just joking. 
That uh, not all sarcasm, I recognize, is going to be passive-aggressive. But the, the word sarcasm, literally, if you go and study the word in the Greek, it's, it means sark and chasm. That's where there's two, it's two different Greek words. One means flesh, and the other one means to gash. And sarcasm in its etymology means to cut the flesh. And so I recognize that for some of us, sarcasm is our humor style, and that's great. But I'm talking about that passive-aggressive sarcasm. And that way of cutting them, that, you know, the subtle things that we can say that just kind of jab, but they're not, it, it's kind of that shank that hits you in the side that you're not sure you got cut with, but then you notice you're bleeding later. It's the little subtle ways of saying, oh, that's really good. Um, you know, you are almost as good as your brother at this age. It's like a compliment, but somehow at the same time, it's a cut that tears down. Or maybe a little bit like this, which I'm sure none of you have ever experienced, where it's just like, I'm not mad. No, quit, quit asking me if I'm mad. I'm not mad. You're like, okay, you're not mad. Or I'm fine. Okay, you're fine. No, you're not. But that's passive aggressive. Why? Underneath the surface, there is this deep-seated aggression and anger. But... You're not going to let it get out, and so you say, I'm not mad. And everyone around you is like, are you kidding me? No one believes that. I'm fine. No, you're not. But it's passive-aggressive. That's a speech pattern that we can fall into. Or it's just no speech at all. It's the silent treatment. You hurt me, so I'm just not going to talk to you. I'll make you sit in silence because that's painful. For some of us, isn't it? To sit beside someone that you care about physically, have proximity, but no relationally, you have distance. You're just, it's, it's torture to sit in a car ride with someone and they're giving you the silent treatment. And it just slowly leaks out. On the surface, there's nothing aggressive about it, but underneath the surface, it is all out aggression. But that's not the only way of bringing death. That's just on the far end. There's another one. I think it's a little bit more subtle way of bringing death in our speech pattern. And it's the tendency to be avoidant. To not say anything at all. Maybe you grew up in a household where you kind of intuitively realize that there's just some things you don't talk about. There's just some topics that are off. There's just some things we don't press into whether it's you know, the addictions in the household, whether it's the other thing on the side that everyone knows but you're not allowed to say, the avoidant tendency. And this, co, this, this, this death looks a little bit more subtle, but what it plays out is it looks like cohabitation, not a conversation. It's two physical, it's two adults inhabiting the same physical space but there is no relationship. The reason why is because you cannot have relationship without intimacy. Unless there is this engagement at the heart and heart level. And that what happens when you start to avoid, and that's your speech pattern, it starts to creep in. And eventually you build walls. And the way 
and what you say. And this avoidance is ultimately, it's a death pattern. It's not as glaringly obvious as the aggressive side, but it still plays out. I made a joke about the fortnight being the reason for 5% of divorces in UK filings, but this is also the same thing. It's this avoidance. It's a, we're going to live our lives to, kind of parallel to one another, but we're not going to, we're not going to have a relationship. Because we're not going to, we're going to talk like coworkers, like acquaintances. And that's what eventually avoidance turns into. And then there's the life size, the, the, that side where it's the attentive side is the way I would describe it. And it's, there's an in-tuneness. There's life-giving. Now, unfortunately, this is far more rare than we would like to admit, but we've all had these experiences. These are the moments when you walk away from a conversation and something inside of you has felt life. I'm not talking about you were manipulated and you were made to feel good, because that's not... That's in the death camp. I'm talking about someone spoke to your soul and built you up and pushed you towards being that better person. I'm on this stage today, like literally, I am speaking because someone's words to me 16, 17 years ago. Someone said specific, life-giving, encouraging words about what they saw inside of me. And that started something inside of me. That seed landed and started to grow. And now... 17 years later, I'm on this stage speaking. That person is still producing fruit in my life, and they passed away seven years ago. And yet their words are still producing fruit in me. I'm a better husband because of the words I would have at breakfast at a restaurant, 6 a.m. on Wednesdays with that person. They're still producing fruit in my life because he came to that table realizing that his words had power and he was intentional. He was attentive, and he would drop those seeds in me, and they would grow. These are those conversations that you have with your significant other, with your child, where you walk away, and you feel closer to one another. I love those moments. I love those little moments when Ella starts talking, and I, I, I'm not just getting the, the verbal stream of a one-year-old, I mean of a first grader that never stops talking, I'm getting her heart. And I'm seeing who, she's, who she is and who she's becoming. I'm like watching a video of her yesterday um, at a birthday party, and she's like climbing this rock wall. And she's like, Daddy, you have to watch this. I didn't give up. And I watched it. I'm like, sweetie, I'm so proud of you. You didn't, you, you want it. I could tell that was so hard. I couldn't do that. Daddy, Daddy couldn't have done that. But you kept going. You kept pushing and then when you fell, you got back up and you went over and you did it again and you did it again and then you did it. I'm so proud of you. I wish I could have saw that. What's that like? And then she's like, watch the video. I'll get to the top and I get to jump off. <laughs> and it's like, I could have easily in that moment done the thing that's the scariest thing to do. The third one. The one I think in the end is where most of us live most of the time. Uh, Jenny has a family member that would, I, I, whenever I think about this third one, this gray zone in the middle, you see you got life and death. I think most of us, if we're not careful, we can camp in the and. And it has the surface appearance of life, but it's not. Jenny, uh, this family member, whenever you would say something, 
that was good. They would go, well, good. And that was it. I could walk in and say, hey, I found a great parking spot. Well, good. I could walk in and say, hey, I want a million dollars. Well, good. I mean, that was it. That was the nature of the conversation. Well, good. It had the appearance of positive. And what it would have looked like yesterday with my daughter when she was like showing me that, Daddy, I didn't give up, I would say, well, look at there. Way to go. And then just pushed the phone away and started talking to Jenny or moved on to something else. Uh, not attentively being aware that uh, some, some kind of moment just happened inside of her. And this is a moment where I could drop a seed. Where I didn't give up can become I'm not a person who gives up. Which is so much better. And this tendency, this well-good tendency, I, I call that the autopilot. It's just kind of going through the motions. So, yay. Oh, that's great. Oh, you made an A today. Good job. Regardless, it's a class that you were concerned you were going to fail in. But you made that A. Way to go. Hey, you need to take the trash out. And we just run over it. Instead of realizing that this child just had a victory moment in their life where they had previously thought they would never, ever experience victory. It's a camping in it. That autopilot is subtle because I don't think any of us intentionally do it. It's autopilot. It's flipped on. Part of it's the busyness of life. Part of it is the devices around us. They've done studies I've talked about before. It's just mind-blowing to me that a phone in the room with you when you're having a conversation with a person Drops your IQ points by 10. Did you know that? If This is why you will never have a conversation with me. If you ever go to coffee with me, I will never. Okay, call me out. I will never put my phone on the table. Ever. Because what I know is that my mind will be paying attention to that phone, waiting for a notification to come through. Because somehow, my, my mom's next-door neighbor's aunt's cousin liking my Facebook post is somehow more important than you. But that's what happens. Ding! And I'm like, oh, let me see. Oh, oh, it's not that important. Oh, what I'm really saying is you're not important. They've documented it. Functional MRIs. People sitting there. And their IQs drop because a part of their brain is it's called monitoring behavior. It's the same thing brand new moms do. It's why if you're ever around a new mom and you're sitting there and talking and they hear... They, you don't hear anything, and they're like, they're crying. What do you mean they're crying? I just heard them. I hear, I hear them crying. That, that, that capacity is called monitoring. And we all have the capacity to do it. And when a phone is present in our proximity, we do that. And what it does is it leads to disengaged conversations. And so this is one of those, I think, autopilot. Busyness, schedules. You, you need time to pay attention. I mean, that's just the reality. And many of us, I'm guilty because this would be my lane. Okay, if, if there was any way in life I would excel, it would be autopilot. I'm an introvert. I love to think. I'm not super emotional. I love facts. I love to ponder, reflect. I don't want to sit down and have small talk. I don't want to sit down and hear 15 details about something. But God's greatest gift to me was he put two women in my life whose pace and whose gifting and whose love language rotates around the ability of listening. 
And I've had to develop this thing. And that's why we, one of our, our habits, just two family habits, because I'm telling you, this is, I would live in this world if, if I wasn't intentional. We eat dinner as a family almost every single night. There is no device remotely present when that happens. The only thing that happens around that table is questions and attention. Jenny, how's your day? What was your highlight? Ella, how was math? Did you, did you have a moment today where you felt frustrated and you wanted to give up? Did someone make you sad? And it's just pulling it out. And I love our dinner times. Because what happens when I walk away from the dinner table is I feel more connected to the people that I do life with. And, and I'll be honest with you. It's not something I drift towards. I want to think about work. I want to think about the things I need to do. I want to, my mind would love to be thinking about what I saw in the news or some book that I'm reading. I mean, I read the most random things. And I'd love to be camped out in those places. But when I come to that table, I have to be intentional. And the other thing that I think, these, these are the two kind of daily disciplines that I, I think have, have been really powerful for us as a family. The other thing is that... Um, Without fail, Jenny and I, on the couch, we talk. I would rather watch the news, because that's, that's my world. Autopilot. Veg out, decompress, distract myself from the worries of the day. But what we do is we sit and we talk. And I'm not exaggerating. It's going to be 30 minutes to an hour, at least, of conversation. We're she's going to start decompressing. She's going to ask me about my day. And to be honest, most of the time, how was your day? Good. Was there any emotional standout moments? Not really. I'm pretty much like this every single day. Like, this is me. Periodically, someone cuts me off, and I go like that for a second, and then I'm back. I'm really boring from the inside. Unless you wanted random factoids about Abraham Lincoln when he was studying law, he would walk 20 miles to take a book back and then return back, and that's how he learned law and became the the minority leader in his like I mean like that's what I get excited about. Last night in the bed, I'm reading. I'm like Jenny, let me tell you about Abraham Lincoln. But Jenny wants to talk about her heart. Ella wants to talk about her heart, or Little Ponies, or. Fancy Nancy, or whatever it happens to be that was stirring inside her little soul that day. And I'm telling you, the dialoguing, the attention, is it exhausting? Sometimes it is. But I wouldn't trade it for anything. Because what Solomon understood is that it starts to produce something. It starts to produce fruit. Because if you're not careful, if you live in the autopilot stage too long, what starts to happen is stagnation and shallow conversations. This is where the death starts to creep in. This is why, the autopilot is why, you look at couples who go through the empty nest phase, there's this like phenomenon of empty nest divorces. Autopilot is why. Because the only thing in their world that they had a conversation about was their children. And when the kids transition, there's nothing else to talk about, and it's shallow. There's no heart-to-heart -heart interchange. There's, no, there's been no like engagement. There's just conversations around the central struggle of children. And then it's gone and it transitions. And what happens over time is that stagnation, and stagnation 
Because of how we're wired, stagnation lives, leads to death, relationally. And Solomon wanted his children to recognize it. And he's like, look, there is going to be fruit out of every one of these ways. And I know that none of us, none of you children, want to go into relationships that become stagnant or dead. But if we're not careful, we will throw seeds flippantly and then wake up one day and be surprised by the harvest. And so what do you do? If A is awareness, the next two is a sentence. H is honesty. And this is, this is not, it's not as simple as it sounds. Accenture did a study that they um, polled people because uh, they were trying to figure out listening in the workplace. And 93% of people who were polled in the workplace said they were great listeners. I don't know if you've worked with 93% of those people. I, I don't see that a lot. I think we live in a world plagued by people who don't listen, right? Most people think they're better listeners than they actually are. Most people think they're better communicators than they actually are. Because we're not very aware of what's going on up there. That while they're talking, what's happening is your brain's going into this thought pattern called wool gathering where you're kind of wandering off thinking about your shopping list or your, your, how your brakes were squeaking and you should probably get that looked at or how... You know, these socks don't feel comfortable on my right foot. That's really strange. These are a lot tighter. Can you gain weight in your right foot and not your left? Like, we do that while someone's talking to us. It's called wool gathering. It's, it's actually, like, it is in psychological literature. It has a title. We don't, and, but we, we kind of aren't even aware it's happening. And I think that's where the honesty piece is so so essential because when you become aware of which lane you're walking in then you have the that pause moment where you're honest and you say I'm so sorry sweetie I, I was checked out I still I'm still carrying something from earlier today a conversation I'm sorry my mind went there what were you saying I want to hear it or the honesty of going ding you know what can can I just sit, can I go put this in the other room because it keeps distracting me and you just walk and you, and you come back. And I'm telling you, you want to win in your relationship? Just do that. Don't have a phone in your hand when you have a conversation. Like some of our relationships, if I'm just being real, some of our relationships would double in their quality if we just put our phones, not in our pocket, but in some drawer or we left it in our car for at least an hour to 90 minutes when we got home. And we walked in and we allowed the verbal like that can be overwhelming when you first walk into a house. Start to flow. And then later on that evening, if you want to sit there and veg on a game or read all the articles or go voyeuristic and watch what everyone's life looks like on social media, that's great. But being present has that powerful way of producing fruit. And so that honesty and then just the adjusting. I'm going to go put the phone up. I'm going to go walk. I'm so sorry. Let me, let me check out the check back in. And Solomon understood the power of this because he knew fruit comes from the seeds we plant. But here's the thing. That word life, I, I, I love words. And I love that life has another word buried inside of it that I think is probably just as important as the word life. And it's the word if. Because here's the deal. Solomon says this to his children. 
But Solomon knows it's not the knowing that's important. It's the doing. And so Solomon has a couple of kids. One of his kids, one specifically, is named Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, if you fast forward in history, grows up in a household where he hears over 90 different Proverbs regularly about the power of the tongue. He gets this from the man who wrote it. And what does Rehoboam do when he becomes king? Within days of becoming king, he tells his people, he says to his people, a few sentences that ultimately lead to the ruin of his kingdom. Rehoboam, within just weeks of becoming the king, inheriting the kingdom from his father, has the kingdom from his father split in half. And why is the kingdom split in half? Because of Rehoboam's words. Because the reality is, is that knowing this is not enough. It's if we do it that makes all the difference. It's the if we do, that really translates to whether or not you're going to see that fruit of life. And so there's a Chinese proverb. It's not in the Bible, but I think it sheds a little bit of light to this one in the Bible. And it's this simple proverb, when's the best time to plant a tree? 20 years ago. When's the second best time? Today that maybe you have a harvest in your relationship right now that is completely the fruit of death patterns in your speech. And yes, would it be great to be walking and living in the life side right now? Yes. But that was two years ago. That was 20 years ago. So how about take the second best time today and become aware of which speech seed you're throwing. Be honest about it. And then start to adjust and take steps towards moving back into that place where words flow out of your mouth, hit the hearts of the people you're talking to, and bring life to them and to the relationship that you have. Let's pray.